So Saul is rejected, and now we have King David at restore. And then it was said to Samuel, because Samuel was going to anoint the king, that this king is going to be found in the line of Jesse. And what that means is he's going to pick one of Jesse's sons. And so Jesse is going to bring his son, who thinks he's the person that's going to be the king, and, and Samuel's going to look at him and say, okay, I'm going to pick between all of your sons to, feed, to find out what king that I'm going to choose. And the one I'm choosing is going to be after my own heart. And so that's where we're at in the story now, is that Saul's been rejected, and Samuel is going to Jesse and to look at his sons to see what king he's going to pick for Israel. David is going to be anointed. But as David is going to be anointed, we do want to ask the question, why did he pick him? Why did he pick him? Let's look at the story. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord has anointed as before you. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his outward appearance or his height or his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesse did just about what anybody would do. He's going to put his best pick forward. And if you look back at these ancient days, the best pick forward is the firstborn son. He's the one that gets all the glory, all the power, all the weight, all the prestige, all the women, whatever it is, he's the one that is granted the inheritance. Eliab is his firstborn son. And as he brings him forward, Jesse says, surely there is a king in your midst. There is no way you would reject this person. What does he do? He says, I don't want him. Instant reject. I'm not looking for the height. I'm not looking for the stature. I'm looking for something else. And it's not his outward appearance. I'm looking for the heart. Neliab doesn't, doesn't have it. So what does Jesse do? He does what every next person does. Well, he doesn't have it in, in Eliab. But we'll just bring the next son. Then Jesse called Abadab and made him pass before Samuel. Samuel said, neither has the Lord chosen him. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes. A couple things I want you to recognize in this passage is that he had seven sons. Seven sons. Seven is the number of what? Perfection. He brought all of his perfection forward. Jesse brought all his perfection forward and said, take a look at him, Samuel. This is all my perfection that you would pick from a king. And he went through every seven of them, and then they were all rejected. To the point where Samuel says, well, don't you have another one? <laughs> I mean, and Jesse's like, oh, yeah, um, I forgot. You know, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't forget. It's it just we have the youngest one, but the youngest in Hebrew is Katan. It doesn't mean that he's just the youngest in age. It, it's kind of, we have the small one. 
We have the insignificant one, which is katan, that's what it means. We have the unimportant one. We have, there's still the least. I mean, there's, it's number eight. You know, seven is perfection. And, you know, we do have like number eight. Almost sounds like he's an accident. Like, ah, you know, you're not looking for, you're not looking for that one. How do you translate the word katan in English? The best word is, we have the runt of the litter. <laughs> what I mean, we, we got, the, we got the runt of the letter, the one that uh, nobody would choose. You want him? And of course, Samuel says, oh, we're going to be here until he is brought in front of us. But you can sense the emotion. Why would you want him, Samuel? He's a shepherd. That means he does the laundry for my seven sons. You know, he keeps the wool, he builds their clothes. For my seven says, why, why do you want him? Verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, I found him, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. Samuel took the oil and did what? Anointed him. Where? In the midst of his seven brothers. I mean, anointing the runt of the litter is kind of a rejection on the other, the other seven. I mean, that's kind of an aggressive statement, but the author of First Samuel, I think, wants to make that statement sad. Where was he anointed? Front of his seven brothers. God picked a king. Who did he pick in that story? Number one, God, one, God picks, picks a runt in that story. He picks the runt. Now, I remember back when I was in junior high and, and high school, and some of you might remember those uh, days as well, and uh, you'd always go to gym class. Whenever you went to gym class, they would say, all right, we're going to play a game, dodgeball, baseball, whatever it is. Everybody line up on the wall, and we're going to have two people that are going to pick the teams. Now, it sounds like a very good thing to do. You know, one pick, then another person pick, then another person pick. But what happens when you get to the end? <laughs> the worst players are always recognized. <laughs> it's like, and so you, you remember, you know, three periods before you go to gym class. I hope I'm not going to be the last one picked in gym class today. Hopefully, maybe, maybe you kind of talk a little bit. You know, pick me before I'll be your buddy. So you can, who's ever going to pick? I mean, because there's a fear. I don't want to be the last one. I don't even know if they do that anymore because I think that they thought it was so hard on kids, you know, uh, being the last one always big. But if there was a line of, all right, let's pick the best and you got the best all the way down to the bottom, God would always start at the bottom. God always starts at the bottom. At least he did in this story. He picked the bottom before he picked the top. I ask the question, what was in this runt that God wanted? What was in this runt that God wanted? Here's something that was in the runt. Runt had a hot heart. A hot heart. We live in this world, we, we see all the outside 
situations. We see what's going on the outside and we make our observations in regards to the outside. Um, because that's, that's what we see. We make our judgments in regards to the outside. That's, that's what we see. But what's going on on the inside of somebody's brains? What's going on in the inside of, of somebody's hearts as, as things are taking place, as things are going on? I mean, just to give you a fast example, I preach every, you know, most, most weeks. So what you see is you see a sermon that comes out. Well, what's really going on in my head as I'm preaching a sermon? <laughs> I mean, I don't tell you. <laughs> the reason why I'm like, I don't want to tell you what's going on in my head as I preach a sermon, uh, because then, then you know something about me. Well, let me confess. I'll tell you. Maybe here are some things that are going on in my head as I preach my sermon. God, your word carries so much power. Help me not put anybody to sleep. <laughs> How do I keep people's attention, you know, for so long? Your word carries the power, but God, help me not to water it down to a point that people fall asleep. <laughs> That's all right. I think about that. Uh, God, your word is so rich and is so strong. I mean, not just present it as something boring. You know, God, your, your, your word carries so much wisdom and carries so much strength. Why in the world am I up here talking when there's so many intelligent geniuses in this room that could be doing a lot better job than up here? I mean, sorry, that's just what kind of goes in my mind as, as, as I think. Our minds are always moving as we're doing something. But what does your mind say as something is being done? One of the greatest jewels that we have in scripture is the story of King David. And the reason why is because he writes a journal of what's going on in his mind as he goes through it. What was going on in David's mind as he goes to kill Goliath? Do you know? Yeah, (laughs) you actually do. You know what's driving him into the battlefield. How do we know? Because we can read his journal. We go to Psalms 23. We read it. Because he journaled it after he went in. This is who I am. So we don't see the outside of him. We actually get to see the inside of him if we read the book of Psalms. So David was chased by Saul. As David was chased by Saul, what was going on in his mind? What was going on in his heart? How was he thinking? Well, we have a journal. We know how he's thinking when he's chased by Saul. We know what's hitting his mind. I mean, there's one story when he is chased by Saul and he has a chance to kill Saul. It actually happens two times. David is hiding in a cave and Saul comes into a cave and Saul's wanting him dead. But he goes into the same cave David is in to use the bathroom. <laughs> this is what's taking place in this story. This is going to happen down the road. And David is standing <laughs> above him as he's using the restroom with a knife in his hand. <laughs> you see the picture, but what's going on in his mind? What's his thoughts? And why doesn't he take the knife and take Saul out? Well, he actually writes a psalm about it. He writes exactly what's going on in his mind. And when we're looking at these stories, we're going to look back and see what's going on in his mind. You know, he, he, he slept with Bathsheba. What was going through his mind when he slept with Bathsheba? We don't have a psalm on that because his mind was not in his head. It was somewhere else. And it was ugly and it was not right. So no, there's no passage on that. But there is a passage when Nathan confronts him, all of a sudden he crushes inside and he goes to his journal and he starts to write down exactly what is in his heart. And then you get Psalms 51. 
So as we're looking at this outside story of, of King David, we get an inside look at what's going on inside of him as these situations are taking place. And Psalms 39 is a Psalms that was written, according to scholars, was written during the time of this anointing, of when he was anointed king. And what does it say? This is his heart. Look at the situation. He's a runt, surrounded by his nine brothers that should have been picked and they're not. And his life is going to change drastically because he's just now being anointed. This is what's in his mind. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. Even that first sentence, you can even sense the weight and the responsibility that he's thinking. I am going into a position, God, I will guard my ways that I will not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. What's that mean? That means he's locking his mouth down so he doesn't say anything good or bad. Because if he says something good, it still could probably, you know, mean something bad. I mean, as you're sitting in the midst of your seven brothers, you could have said, ha, I got the king, you didn't. That is correct. But probably not the best thing to say when you're getting anointed as king with your seven brothers around you. They should have chosen them instead of him. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. So long as the wicked. The Hebrew word for wicked is rasha, and it means condemned. Condemned is expressed complete disapproval of. I express complete disapproval of you. So as long as I am with those that are expressing complete disapproval of me in my presence, I will keep my mouth shut. I was mute and silent. I held peace to no avail. My distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. What's taking place? In this passage, you can see a weight has just been put on his shoulders. A weight that carries so much pressure that he's paralyzed I cannot speak because there's so much responsibility here. And I know I will say something wrong, but yet this turmoil inside what I want to speak burn, makes my heart burn within me. And I get hot. What is this man? This man is a, a person with full emotions that has just received responsibility. He knows the weight, the responsibility. Eliab, who was Eliab? He was the firstborn of Jesse. The one that should be the king. Now, if you're the one that should be the king, I mean, I mean, how thick would your thinking go? It's like, of course, of course it's me. God wouldn't choose them. He, he, he would choose me. And I can get a weight like this. You can wait from David. Weight was heavy. And inside this weight, he was intentional. 
He was under control. He was wise. He was determined. He was steadfast. He was sensitive inside of his emotions, inside of his heart. Number three, the runt had a burning heart. He had a hot heart and he had a, a burning heart. What is a burning heart? Best way to describe a burning heart, give you an explanation of who my dog is. I've got two dogs. I've got a big dog who's a golden doodle, and then I also have a small dog whose name is Baxter, and, and he's a border terrier. And uh, a border terrier, you, you look up, what's the number one cause of death for a border terrier? And do you know what comes up on Google? Accident. <laughs> it's not old age. No, they, they die of an accident before they get to old age. That's the number one cause of death, and, and I believe it. The reason why I believe it, because he's always in trouble. He's always attacking the dogs he should not attack. We have a dog next door. It's a Great Dane. That's a 180-pound dog, and he's 20 pounds. What does he do? Attack. He doesn't care. Just, it's just attack. My big dog, who's 90 pounds, stays on the other side of the fence and barks. But not the little dog. The little dog go over there, and he will cause trouble and trouble and trouble and trouble and trouble with the neighbors and with that dog. He's always doing something. He's a hunting dog. And he goes in holes that he's not supposed to go. He goes in places he's not supposed to, play, uh, to, to, to land. And then he attacks animals he's not supposed to attack. We have cows on our property. What does he do? Power and control. You know, I got control of these animals, these beasts. And he has no brains. All he does is just go, run, attack. And the cows kick. They miss. He's fast. It, it, it kick, they swing, they chase, but he's just, oh, I'm going to be all right, I'm going to be all right, I'm going to be all right, but he's never all right. He's cost me a fortune. <laughs> I have to take him to bed all the time. It's like, what is wrong with you now? And the other day, a couple weeks ago, he's outside the house, and I opened the door, and I saw him, and, and his leg was up, and it had mud on it, and I'm like, oh my goodness, did you get kicked by a cow? You know, did the cow step on you? Because he wasn't putting any weight on his leg. And so my wife and daughter says, you know, maybe we should take him to the vet. I'm like, no, I'll just let him live with it. He's fine. And uh, so that happened on Saturday. And, and Sunday, we just let him live with it. On Monday, he still didn't put any weight on it. And we were touching to see it. And it started swelling up. It's like, this leg is, eh, it's probably broken. So he said, all right, let's take it. Let's take it to the vet. So my daughter took him to the vet. Maya took him to the vet. And, uh, and left, dropped him off. And he got the x-ray. And he got the exam. And he got all this stuff. And then she goes, Dad, come in with me so we can get the report. So I go in with my daughter to get the report. And uh, we go back into the back room where the vet's at. And, and the vet says, well, we did an x-ray, and we do not see that it is broken. It's like, oh, well, that's good. Well, we can send him home then. He goes, but, he says, there's a lot of, there's a lot of flex in his joints. And his tendons could have been, been smashed. And I want to send your x-rays forward to um, look at a, um, an orthoscopic surgeon to see if we want to take care of those things. I'm like, orthoscopic surgery, what, what's that going to cost me? It's like, oh, you know, you know three, four, five thousand dollars, five, five thousand dollars for an orthoscopic. Uh-huh. It's like, uh, I, I said, well, wait, wait, can you just cut the leg off? <laughs> the guy says, you know, that's a little extreme. I said, I think paying you five thousand dollars is a little extreme. I said, think about this. This dog has nine lives, and he's already spent seven. If you send him home with three legs, it's going to take him a little longer to spend his last two. <laughs> that's, that's math. And, and sure enough, I just finished the dog story. He does, went home on a cast. He took the cast off. It, it, I it think it's healed. If it's not, he's going to have to live with it. That's just kind of where the, the story is at. 
but that dog's going to die. If you want a prayer request, you can, you can put up that prayer request. And he's six years old, and he's not going to make it to old age because of he's got a burning heart. He's got desire, passionate. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to make it happen. Just, just tell me where to go. I'll go. The weight hit David to the point that I can't speak. But then he says, but then I have to speak. I have to speak. And then the last part of verse three says, then I spoke with my tongue. It's really interesting. What is he gonna say? The weight's so heavy I can't speak, but I have to speak because it's burning in me. What is he gonna say? (laughs) This is what he says. Oh Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely nothing they are in toil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Look at the sharp phrases. Make me know my end. What is the measure of my days? I am a fleeting person. My days are hand breaths. My lifetime is as nothing, God, before you. Every person is a mere breath. We are nothing but shadows. And so many people just take that time and heap up The weight is heavy, God, but I'm all yours. I don't want to be that one that heaps up wealth as an investment in my life. If I have one life, you got it. If I have nine lives, it's yours. Let me know my end. I don't know where we're going, God, (laughs) but I know by this anointing, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be wild. It's going to be nuts, but I'll be with you in the process. It's got a hot heart. Tell me where to go. I will do it. I'm called for something great. And being called for something great is not going to be easy. I sign up. Sign it up. What was driving him to this point? Number four, the runt had a believing heart. He had a believing heart. If there is one word that is completely underestimated in the Bible, it it would be belief. I think we underestimate so many words, but belief is one that we way underestimate. We underestimate the power of belief. Belief is actually the most powerful force of mankind's disposal. It it drives you, it sends you, it makes you, it moves you, it transforms you. You believe, then you do. That's just how it works. I mean, I believe that exercise will make me healthy. That's the only reason I do it. I mean, why do you do it? Because you believe, and if you believe, you're gonna get up early in the morning. If you believe, that's why I'm getting up at five o'clock in the morning because I believe that exercise makes me healthy. I believe that not eating sugar is something that will 
make me healthy as well. Of course, I challenge the belief on a consistent basis because I look at the pie in front of me and I, I fall, but I still believe that it's not good. But what if one drop of sugar give me automatic cancer? Well, if I completely believe that, I'd stay alive. I wouldn't touch it. See what happens, we're, we're moving forward and we're going back on our belief. I believe that if I want a relationship with my wife that is rich and strong and healthy, then I need to love her like Christ loved the church. And by me believing that actually takes it, depending on how much I believe it, will take it and, and make me live that way. And the only reason I'd even live that way is because I'd believe it. And I believe that God told me to do it, so then I would do it. I believe that if I invest money, I will get a return. How many of you would invest money if you believed you would not get a return? <laughs> Nobody would put money into a hole. I mean, whenever you do something and take something that is yours and place it somewhere, you're doing it because you're believing something before it takes place. We're driven by belief. Every decision is driven by belief. And everything that has been accomplished in this world has been driven by what? It's been driven by belief. When the pilgrims came over here, the sea across the Atlantic, went across the sea in the Atlantic, they believed that there would be a better home here. They believed that there would be freedom. And since they believed, they took everything they owned and they traveled. Why? Because they believed. That's it. Henry Ford believed that he can put an automobile into every single person's home. All of us would have an automobile. So as he, he believed that everybody could have an automobile. When he's creating his automobile, he thought of it in such a way, how am I gonna put every one, uh, automobile in everybody's hands? So what did he do? He built an assembly line so he could produce them faster because he believed that it could be done. But if he didn't believe that every person could have an automobile, he wouldn't have put an assembly line together. But he believed it. The Wright brothers believed that we could fly. So what do they do? They spent everything they possibly had for the purpose of showing the world that they can fly. <laughs> Show the world we, we can get into the air. They spent their time, they spent their emotions, they spent their effort, they spent their energy. They, they spent all that they had because why? Because, because they believed. Belief is like a weapon. You point it in a direction, it's gonna explode. The question is just what do you believe? The word believe is I'm convinced it's true. Hear the words, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Say those words again. Just convinced it's true. And what happens if you're convinced it's true and you open up the pages of scripture, all of a sudden this salvation unfolds and it gets stronger and richer and more powerful. Why? Because all this is doing is building on your belief. Here's David. I have a massive weight that was just put on my shoulders. <laughs> I cannot speak, but I must speak. It sounds like I'm a messed up person because I am a messed up person. And the weight is unbearable. So you have him at this level, but then all of a sudden his mind like hits another degree. 
If you look at the Psalms, they're, they're, they're so bipolar. And they're, almost all of them are bipolar. They go up, they go down, they go up, they go down. Here's David's emotions. I've got this weight, but I'm going to do it. Why? Because I believe. You see what happened? It's like he's singing a song. That's what Psalms are. He's singing a song. I got this weight. I can do it. Why? Because I believe. Verse 7, and now, Lord, for what do I wait? hopes in you. I've got nine lives, I'll spend them all on you. Number five, Runt has a broken heart. Now let's, let's sing the song again. The weight is put on there. Oh my goodness, it's crazy. I can't believe the pressure's just been put on, but I can do it. I'm giving it to you, all of it to you. Why? Because I believe. And then all of a sudden, he crashes. <laughs> Reality sinks in. But God, I'm a sinner. Deliver me from all my transgressions. God, God, I don't know if you know this, but you just anointed me as a king, and I'm a sinner. I, I, I messed up. God, please do not make me the scorn of a fool. Please do not make me a scorn. What is that, a worthless? Do not make me a worthless fool. I messed up and you're sending me a direction and God, you can do whatever you want. You might just make a worthless fool out of me. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done this. <laughs> I'm not choosing this, God. I, I didn't say anything. But you were doing this. And I'm a sinner, and you might send me a direction that makes me look like a fool. Do you see his emotions? That a reality is just now coming on his shoulders as the weight even comes down. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume him like a moth. What is dear to him, surely all mankind is a mere breath. You and I, God, are gonna walk together and I am going to make mistakes before you and before your people and before the world. I'm not a perfect king. But he's anointed. God knew it. God knew it. He knows there's going to be a perfect king that's going to come in Jesus Christ. But he knows David's not perfect. And through it, there is going to be a work that is going to be done through David where we would be able to understand God more as a result of him not being perfect and God's response to David and how he works with this individual. That's the power of Scripture. And then Jesus Christ is going to come and say, I am the son of who? David, which is now the perfect king. God doesn't pick perfect people. God doesn't pick perfect people. We see it right here. He picks people who know they're not perfect. 
That's who he picks. Eliab, you're the one. You're the top. You're the one that should be picked. I'm not picking that one because he thinks he should be picked. No, I'm going to pick the one that doesn't think that he should be picked because the work that I'm going to do in his life is not going to be his work in this world. It's going to be my work through him. Seven is perfect. I think I'll pick eight. Seven sons presented. Give me the runs. Looking for somebody with a broken heart. And here's David as he's even speaking to this song. How do I work with you, God? I'm a sinner. God, don't make me a worthless fool. How do I work with you? I'm nothing. How do I work with you? I am going to mess up. How do I work with you? You're going to discipline me. And when you discipline me, God, you're going to consume me like a moth because that's how you do it. God, how can I work with you? I, mankind is just a mere breath. I'm not going to make any impact in this world. I mean, my life is going to be short. And is there anybody ever going to be reading about me? God, this doesn't make sense, the pressure that you put on me. But there's reality of what he's thinking. It's reality of what he's thinking. Above it, we get to see God at work. Number six, the runt had a prayerful, relational heart. Things are going tough, <laughs> and reality starts to set in. Where does David go? He goes right to God in prayer. You're going to be a hard discipliner. <laughs> You're going to be a person that's going to be mad at me. I'm going to mess up. But hear my prayer, O oh Lord. And give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace in my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Where does he go? Hear my prayer. Give ear to my cry. He's not give ear to my mouth. No, give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace from my tears. What is this? Just a... It's just a person that knows he has nothing without God. For I am a sojourner with you, God. We're just going through this world, but I'm with you, a guest, like all my fathers, just walking through. And then he says something that's interesting. God, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart to them I no more. What does that mean? God, look away from me so I can gain strength before I fall over dead for the amount of pressure that you have just put on me. You should have picked somebody else. And God says, that's why I picked you. Because David knew who he was. A sinner in front of a holy God. A weak person in front of a powerful God. Somebody that had little and could even offer little with a God that had so much can change every single aspect in this entire world. You see the relationship that David understood between God and himself? You see the relationship? What can we learn about God? We see this man had a hot, burning, believing, prayerful, broken, and prayerful heart, and God anoints him. What can we learn about God in this story? Number seven, God doesn't use people in spite of your weaknesses, God uses people because of our weaknesses. What we do is we often think, okay, God will use me in spite of my weaknesses. That's not true. God will use you because.
has. You were like, where was David at? Nowhere. <laughs> what does that mean? He was watching sheep. He didn't have anybody to talk to except sheep and God. That was it. Nowhere. Where was any of them? Where were the seven sons of Jesse? They were in the center of everything, in the center of life, as David was nowhere. Who did David talk to? The only person he could talk to was God. He talked to God. Little did David know that being nowhere, talking to God, was training God was training him how to kill Goliath. You know the story, even sent lions and bears in the process of being nowhere. And he's killing them. What was he doing? Inside of his weakness, he was being trained to be a king. God does not want a king who's independent of him. And anybody who is rich, powerful, and famous is what? Independent of God. Anybody who is poor, lame, broken, and weak is what? Is dependent on God. I mean, when do people come to church? Do they come to church when life is going so good? No, they come to church when their relationships are broken. People start visiting church when they're, when they're going broke. They're, people visit church when they're hurting because they don't need God as long as they can make it in the world. David knew, I'm not making it. And therefore, all my dependence is on God. And God's going, that's the person I am looking for. Though you are weak, I will be strong. As we mentioned all the time, who does the work anyway? Who fights all the battles? God's the one that fights all the battles. All he needs is a vessel that says, I'm nothing and you are everything. God, take me. and I have nowhere the journey's gonna go. But as a result of the assignment, <laughs> I guess I will enjoy the crazy ride and pay the price that I must pay for the purpose of doing what you want. God, always picks the run, <laughs> always picks the run. And the reason why is because you cannot fill something that's full. You have to fill something that's empty. And God's not looking for people that are full, full of themselves, full of their accomplishments, full of their mind. God's looking for somebody that's empty so he can fill them of himself. That's what he's looking for. David was empty. God's like, I'm glad you know it. And as a result of you knowing it, I'm gonna fill you with myself. Always picks the right. In fact, if you, if you, if you look through scripture, it's, it's really interesting because in the, the kingships during the process of scripture, it's always the oldest son who is the most qualified, who has the rich wealth. It's always the son that is the oldest, the father puts forward, he's the king. It's kind of even that in our world nowadays, if you look at different countries that are choosing kings, it's always the oldest son, it's, it's not the second son. And the other thing is that the oldest son takes a kingship position, it always gets the desired woman. Just say it the way it is. The oldest son gets a kingship and gets the desired woman, whatever desired woman God works backwards. God looks for the forgotten son, which Jesse forgot, and the woman that is not desired. 
I mean, think about this. He chose Abel, not Cain. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. He chose Jacob, not Esau. He chose Moses, not Aaron. Those are not the oldest sons. Whenever God is going to pick somebody, he does not pick the oldest one because that's the way the world does it. And then when it comes to the ladies, what does he do? He chose Sarah, not Hagar. He chose Leah, not Rachel. He chose Ruth. Ruth is a foreigner. He chose Hannah. He chose Tamar. He's chosen the ladies back in the Bible days that were not wanted. Who were the ones that were not wanted back in the Bible days? Those who could not bear children. This is back in the Bible days. Because if you couldn't bear children, you couldn't support yourself. If, if you couldn't bear children, you couldn't take care of yourself, you couldn't have a farm, you couldn't have, you couldn't have a life. That's why the Bible talks consistently about taking care of the widows because back in these days, it was horrific. So the ones that could not have the children and the ones that were, were struggling, God's like, <laughs> I will choose them. What did he do? Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Mona, the Shumite lady, Elizabeth, all those ladies were what? They were barren. What does that mean? That means their wombs were a mess. It means they were old. That means they could not bear children. They were the ladies that everybody was like, oh. but what did God do with these ladies? I don't know how to explain it scientifically, but he took care of it. All of a sudden, Sarah has a baby at a real old age. She should not have a baby. Why did she have a baby? God put the baby there. It was Abraham's baby, but it took some intervention. The three of the patriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, were barren. And God wants to tell the world, they can't have babies, but I'll put the babies there. And they're patriarchs. What is God trying to say? Is God saying, I'm the one that's doing the work. Hannah was barren. Master, it does not work. She pleaded for God, and who did she have? She had Samuel. How did she have Samuel? Because God granted her Samuel. Mona had Samson, the Shumanite lady, had Elisha. These guys were changing the world by God implementing his hands to putting people inside of their wombs. Elizabeth had John the Baptist. And then we get the ultimate, which is Mary. I'm gonna save the world. You have all these examples of how I work. So nobody should question the virgin birth. I will put in Mary a seed, and it will be me. <coughs> it will be God made into a man. And then God, who's made into a man, will live a perfect life, die on the cross, raise again for the salvation of the world. And he is going to be the king of kings. You know, God is picking a king right now as he's looking at David. And, and when you look at a king, there's two different kings that are in this world. One of the king is a king who accumulates power from his position, money, and people. A king in this world accumulates power from his position, 
you respect me. His money, I've got it all. And his people, you're gonna be soldiers that's gonna drive forward and take what we need and move where we gotta go. That's what a king does. He accumulates the power, what? From the world. But there's another king out there. And this is God's king. <laughs> and he has something different in mind. This is God's king. God's king distributes God's power to his people. God's king distributes his power to his people. David was all by himself, praying to God. A broken individual with a hot heart. And what did God say? God says, I want to distribute power to my nation, to my people. Stand up and lay down your life so I can live through you to distribute power. And it's the same thing that Christ did, the King of kings and Lord of lords. I will lay down my life to distribute power to my people. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and the Holy Spirit will then enter you and his name will be proclaimed for all the years afterwards. David was picked to be the king. God wanted the runt because the runt knew where he was at. And that was the position God wanted him to be. And what's interesting is David knowing where he was at is exactly where all of us are at as well. You don't deserve one ounce of God. You don't deserve one ounce of salvation. I don't, des I don't deserve one blessing that God would even give me. I don't even deserve the air that he allows me to breathe. We do not deserve it. That's who we are. <laughs> Every one of us. But God in his great mercy left heaven, came to earth, died in our stead, rose again so I could live. To proclaim my name? <laughs> Absolutely not. To proclaim his. To proclaim his. This is good news for every one of us. And the reason why is because it applies to every single one of us. That if you have any sort of doubt in your mind that I cannot be used by God, I cannot be saved by God, I cannot be even touched by God, I cannot even have a relationship with God, it's like, that's your first step to salvation. I am a sinner. And then God did it all. Take the next step. Believe that God did it all. Because that's exactly what the story of David's going to be. It's not about David. We'll talk about David, but it's really about God. A sinner who believed it and allowed God to work through him to accomplish great things. God, thank you so much for doing it all. God, our salvation is not completed by us. And we know that. And even when we think about it and we believe it, God, it crushes us because there's no way we can be perfect. But we praise your name, God, for going to heaven on your life and not ours. For living the perfect life that we did not live and for dying the death that we should have died and raising again so your light can shine in us. God, the gift of salvation to us, God, is real, powerful, strong. Help us to increase our belief in it knowing that it is belief that drives us, sends us, moves us, makes us, and comforts us. Thank you, God, for your gift. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.